0: On today's episode, we speak to Azabi Brown. Originally from America, he is a leading authority on Japanese architecture, design and environmentalism. He has authored many groundbreaking books on living space and at the same time, his passion for sculpture and other creative mediums continue to be widely exhibited in Japan and overseas. Currently, he is a lead researcher at Safecast, a visiting professor at Moschina Art University and Kyoto University in Japan. So at one point, he could be deeply enthralled in discussing sculpture making and in the following second, planing nuclear molecules. Welcome to my friend and fellow safecaster, Azubi Brown. Thanks for having me. And to my co-host, Hinako, how are you?
1: I'm good. I'm very cold. But yeah, I'm good. Thank you.
0: At this moment in time, I'd love to have Azubi's Cajun chicken.
2: Cajun chicken? Yeah. yeah, well, as you mentioned, I'm I'm from... New Orleans in the U.S., which is in the state of Louisiana, which is in the very far south. And it was a very interesting culture. Um, It was a French colony initially unlike the ones on the East Coast that became the first uh, you know United States it was a part of France and then it was a Spanish colony and then became a French colony again before it became uh, part of the United States and there was always uh, a big mixture of cultures so certainly French culture Spanish culture but uh, because it was a deep south and part of the I mean the economy was based on plantation slave labor uh, there were a lot of Africans as mm-hmm. well. Uh, And there were also Native Americans, Mm -hmm. and everyone brought their ideas of food and taught each other how to cook, and it ended up being a wonderful uh, mixture of cuisines. So some Mm -hmm. of it's a little French, it's a little Spanish, uh, it's a little African, and uh, what I cooked for you that day, we call chicken chicken sauce piquant. So, piquant is spicy sauce. It's kind of a tomato sauce mm. with a mix of spices and served over rice. Sounds delicious. And in fact, it looks a lot yeah. like, you know, West African cuisine. I yes. mean, to a lot of people. Um, we have wonderful food called gumbo. Gumbo is, right. is actually okra in some African mm-hmm. dialects and uh, okra is part of the, the food uh, in our region as well. And we have a great dish called jambalaya, which I believe is... word of african origin as well it's kind of almost like a paella it's a mixed rice dish Mm. with seafood and other things in it yeah
0: definitely have some dishes like that i remember jollof in Ghana. yes uh, very
2: similar similar to jollof yes
0: why did you leave this amazing country of delicious food
2: in the middle of you know living in new orleans and coming to japan i was in university uh, Yale College. Uh, and this is in New England, in, in New Haven, Connecticut. It's very close to New York. Uh, and I, I tell people that that was actually almost as much of a culture shock to go from New Orleans to the East Coast uh, and Yale as it was to, come from, to go from the United States to Japan. Big culture shock in the way people communicate, expectations, in some ways, communication style of the South Uh, in the U S is a little more, uh, a little similar to Japan. It's not as confrontational. Um, there's not this idea that conversations have winners and losers, you know, it's like conversations to get people to know each other. So, and, and in that sense, I was very comfortable in Japan, but when I was in college, I got very interested in, in Japanese architecture. And also gardens and other things. And I had a roommate who had spent a lot of time in Japan in high school. And I had a a sculpture professor who had learned paper making here. And unbelievable as it may seem, at the time, and I graduated in 1980, so that was quite a long time ago, there were no courses at even a university like Yale about Japanese architecture. Now, that's Mm. unbelievable now. Almost any major university will have some course on Japanese architectural history or something like that. But it didn't exist. So Mm. I was able to make a class just for myself uh, Mm. with a faculty advisor. And that's basically what I spent my final year of college on and wanted to come to Japan, but didn't have the chance until a few years after I graduated in 1983.
1: So you made a class.
2: That's one of the things about you know, a university that has good resources or a good endowment. and And in the United States, the Ivy League universities, uh, they all have, um, you know, resources, to allow a student to study just about anything they want to study. Mm-hmm. If you can persuade an advisor or the department chairman that you're sincere, mm-hmm. they'll find a way to make it happen. So uh, it's true at other universities as well, smaller colleges and, and certainly in other parts of the world. But for me, that was a huge uh, plus point of uh, going to a place like Yale. So I didn't know when I entered that that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I was doing a lot of music yeah. and theater in New Orleans mm. and, and dance. I was a ballet dancer, Ooh. and I expected that I would major in theater. I, I chose Yale because mm-hmm. I, it has a very good reputation for theater, so I thought that's what I would do. But after my first year, you know, I thought, okay, that's okay, but there's really interesting, you know, art classes and really interesting architecture classes, so I decided I would shift Still continued to do performing. I did a lot of theater in college, continued dancing and stuff, and also did, um, you know, performance-related artworks uh, within the sculpture department. So I continued that. But, you know, I didn't realize that I would focus on Japanese architecture like that and didn't anticipate at all that I would end up spending my life and career in Japan.
1: But there was no class about Japanese architecture, right, at that time? So right. How did you find out about Japanese architecture? We time?
2: had a great library. This was the wonderful thing. Uh, the library at Yale, there were several, big library system. There was uh, one library for art and architecture. And mm. it had a great selection of books on Japanese architecture. Wow. But again, you know, this was several decades ago. There weren't nearly as many mm. as there are today. Uh, so I would just read those books on Japanese farmhouses or books on Katsura Rikyu or books on, you know, castles, as well as contemporary architecture. It also had a great selection of Japanese architecture magazines, magazines mm-hmm. that you're familiar with, I'm yes. sure, That's like Shin Kenshiku and Kenshiku yes. Bunka and and all of these. So I would sit there and look through these and be amazed. Like This mm-hmm. is a totally different world. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, at least one, actually two, uh, well-known Japanese architects came uh, to speak at the university uh, while I was there or shortly after I graduated. One was uh, Harahiroshi. And when I came to Japan, I was lucky I was able to get in touch with him. And then he was teaching at University of Tokyo. And he suggested that I talk to Professor Koyama, who became my advisor. And And Koyama sensei actually recommended that I enter the, the the master's program at uh, at todai so uh it's all all connected
0: i, I need to jump in here because yeah. that's scary how close your story is to mine outside really? of the the music why is that for me i had the exact same magazines piling through them there was a professor at my university who said strong interest in architecture so he built up that mm-hmm. discourse the person who came to the speaker i listened to was uh king kuma-san uh-huh and so when he gave his presentation, that's uh-huh. when I was like, "Oh."
2: Now, Nanda, remind me, where was that university?
0: That was at uh, Witts University in Johannesburg,
2: in South. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Kumasan went to Johannesburg and 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 talked about architecture. You happened to be there. Yes, that's great. Wow. And uh, so he
0: was uh, the the great thing I I picked up from him, and why I then wanted to come was that he was really earnest in uh, understanding African materials. So yes. Those are, and uh he really earth
2: likes- and other natural materials yeah yes. yeah it's great he's great interest in that stuff um he's my senpai from todai yeah so um i don't have to say too much about that but i've known him for a long time and uh we get along very well we, we talk and occasionally introduce him to projects etc so um but he's an interesting guy we see he's a whole different generation right this is yes. also we have a big mm-hmm. generation between us because mm-hmm. uh, you graduated what year did you graduate
0: uh, 2010, somewhere there. 2010. So, yeah.
2: so that's fully, you know, 30 years after me, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's a, a lifetime. In terms yeah. of appreciation of Japanese architecture or Japan in general, Japanese arts, Japanese popular culture, it, it's just amazing the difference. I mean, this notion of uh, that I explained that there was no course at my university is one example. I can tell you another example. I, I w- was back in New Orleans for holidays, and there's a university called Tulane University in New Orleans, a very, very good university with a good architecture school, and I uh, was invited to a party uh, with people who had gone to that school or were at that school. And one person came up to me and said, oh, you're at Yale. You're studying architecture, I heard. So what are you studying? Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, Le Corbusier. Who, I mean, these are major, you know, modern architects from the t- early 20th century, and uh, And I said, well, yes, of course, I've studied them, but I'm much more interested in Japanese architecture. For instance, metabolism and kikutake and ando (laughs) and ito. Mm. And he looked at me and didn't say a word, turned around and walked away. It was as if I was speaking gibberish, Mm. like nonsense. He had no idea was (laughs) Japanese architecture was not on his radar at all. And again, this is around 1979 or 78 or something before 1980. And now, um, I mean, I read a, um, a, a magazine that was a couple of years ago, like 40 architects under 40. And every single one of them had either uh, studied in Japan or had worked for a Japanese architect or interned for a Japanese <laughs> architect. Like, mm-hmm. like in order to really be an accomplished architect today, it's expected that you will know about Japanese architecture. Mm. This is so different than it was, uh, you know, 30 years ago. Huge, wonderful, positive change.
1: Yeah, I heard you have you two have known each other for a while. Like, how did you guys meet first?
2: Um, how did we meet? Yeah. This? So I I, I think you just showed up one day. Yeah, you showed up. Yeah, theory? you just showed up one day and said hi. <clears throat> that
0: is true. I'm Nanda. <clears throat> that is very true. I I just that's one things I do in Japan. There's no security, so I just walk up into the offices um, and
2: and look through the <laughs> look through the <laughs> cabinets <laughs> and. You
0: know. yeah. No, you don't do that find something I like I usually stay kind of moving forward in your career the way I actually found you was through your previous university
2: Kanazawa yes oh yes
0: and, um, before I jump into Kanazawa could you just mention to the listeners uh the type of work you were doing at uh, K- Kanazawa
2: well again um I I was at Todai I did my master's degree I guess I got that in 1988 um and I had been Already I, I published my first book on Japanese carpentry. You mentioned the edition from 2014, but the, f- the first edition of that was 2008. While well, I was still a master's degree student. This was studying temple carpentry. So I spent three years uh, documenting the work of the last great temple carpenter named uh, Nishoka Tsunekazu. And uh, he was working in Nara at Tem- Yakushiji Temple at the time. Um, I worked on a PhD for a long time. Uh, and then got a teaching offer from Kanazawa Kogyo Daigaku, Kanazawa Institute of Technology, uh, and uh, took the teaching job and actually never actually finished my PhD. Uh, and I worked there for 20 years. Now, for the beginning, I was in the architecture department, teaching architecture design. And it was it was a, quite an adjustment. I mean, I knew I had been studying at, at Toho. I understood the Kenkyu shitsu system. I understood the basic academic system, but it was still a big challenge. But I enjoyed it a lot, uh, and and continued to make work. I, I Made a lot of sculpture. They had great workshops. I did exhibitions, you know, it was really interesting. Uh, And then I was asked to move to a new department called the Department of Media Informatics. They had just established a department, and I had established um, the CAD architecture, CAD, uh, you know, computer program, education, syllabus, et cetera, curriculum at uh, Kanazawa uh, Kodai. And uh, so I was also teaching students how to use video and, you know, uh, you know imaging and lots of things like that. So they said, oh, can you come and be part of our new department? I said, yes. Uh, meanwhile, I was able to set up a laboratory in Tokyo in Harajuku called the Future Design Institute. So after a couple of years They said, you don't have to teach anymore. You can just be a full-time researcher. Mm -hmm. So I spent most of my time in Tokyo at my laboratory. Uh, And again, it was design-oriented, creativity-oriented, but specifically focused on the human hand. Mm -hmm. And we started with the question, uh, is there anything that can only be made by hand? If so, why? And is there anything that cannot be made by human hand? Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And if so, why not? So, uh, and we would come up with things like, "Oh, origami." Yeah, that requires human hands to make origami. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll, so surprised because like a month after that conversation, uh, a university laboratory in the U.S. Uh, you know showed that they had made a or- origami folding robot. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work like human fingers. It was more like a machine that folds cardboard boxes, kind of a thing, but. Ah, oh, that was amazing. So, well, scratch the origami. It has to be something else. So, very interested in, in, in the human hand and did a collaborative research with neuroscientists and perceptual psychologists for about five years. Uh, got a grant to do that and, um, did a lot of experiments about human, what's called haptic imaging. So, uh, if you touch something, for instance, if you have keys in your pocket, like I have keys, um, and, and so, like, one of them is my house key. One of them is the storage, you know. If I'm just sticking my hand in my pocket, how do I know? How do you know what it is you're touching? And it's it's a big it's an interesting problem,
0: right? So so, so, so haptic basically means uh, how you sense haptic you is a
2: sense of touch, sense of touch, and there's a lot. Of, it's a very interesting thing because it has both the surface, uh, you know, the sensitivity of your skin, the receptors in your skin, also that you know when you're, how your hand is moving. Yeah. Uh, so theres something called proprioception. Uh, there's something called uh, cutaneous perception and they all work together but the whole thing is how do you know if you if you're if you can't see something, like how do you know it's round or how do you know it's a square block? and is it connected with vision and if so how yeah. and and the research shows there is some overlap in some aspects with the visual processing. Uh, so this was a really interesting thing. so yeah. worked with neuroscientists for, five years or so while continuing you know other other creative work and then the disaster happened
1: what kind of disaster
2: the 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 2011 march 2011 tsunami earthquake tsunami and nuclear disaster
0: i was not here so you're probably the better person to ask because you were in japan at that time
1: yeah i was in japan but it was like 10 years ago so i was like 14 at the time yeah Mm.
2: yeah you weren't worried
1: I was worried, but it was north of Japan. It was in south of Japan, so maybe... Uh,
2: it seemed far away, right? Yeah, it yeah. really far away Yeah. for me. Yeah. 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 The further people were away from the disaster, the less they were really concerned by it, uh, even in Japan. Yeah.
0: yeah. And maybe even as a, as, a, as a great way to segue into that is that the Fukushima disaster then linked into one of your current roles right now, which is at Safecast mm-hmm. as a lead researcher. Mm-hmm. How did you have that addition? Because from what you've explained so far is that um, at the design institute, you were starting to get this, I suppose, inkling or touch points into other domains, you know, outside yes what yeah. you had specialized in. Um, what brought you to, to SafeCast and how did that...
1: Um... Maybe you can also explain what SafeCast is for people who don't know. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: SafeCast uh, is uh, an independent, volunteer-based organization that enables people to do citizen science, mm-hmm. enables average people to take scientific measurements, collect data, etc. And we began the day after the disaster in March, 2011. Uh, And initially the three co-founders were Joey Ito, who was then at the MIT media lab. He was basically becoming director of that. Peter Franken, who lives in Tokyo, had lived in Tokyo for a long time. And Sean Bonner, who is on the West coast in in LA. And they were sort of networking and just brought in a lot of people because there was not enough information from the government or Japanese media about the spread of radiation it was hard to know what the risk was and if if you were here at the time or even if you're watching from overseas uh, the news people in Japan said oh well everything's under control it's under control of course there was this horrific tsunami which everybody watched this incredibly traumatic thing yeah just to watch and, of course, devastating for the yeah. people who experienced it. A uh, huge loss of life there. Yeah. And then there's news the following day. Oh, this nuclear reactor in Fukushima lost
0: power. Yes.
2: And one of my friends, actually a colleague I had been doing research with on – actually it was a sort of peace, um, peace-related peace research. Uh, you know, we had a meeting uh, planned the, the day after the disaster and I called and, uh, I, and I said, where are you? And she said, oh, I'm, I'm on my way to Kansai. I'm leaving. I said, why? Don't you know? There's a nuclear disaster <laughs> story. And I was, really? You know? So um, there was not enough information. And Safecast, uh, after trying to gather and collate, uh, in, aggregate information on the internet uh, and make a map of that, realized there was not enough information from other sources either. So uh, we decided that we had to make our own radiation detectors and make our own maps. So we developed something called the b Geiki, And B stands for bento, because it looks like a bento box. It's in a plastic case. And it has a sensor and GPS and, and can log data, record data. And we made a whole series of these. And you just could put it on your car or walk around with it. And it would make uh, a map of the radiation where you went. This was absolutely uh, innovative and groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. The fact that anybody could do it and it was done at a very low cost. uh, And it maximized what you could do with just one Geiger counter because it was almost impossible to get Geiger counters uh, or any kind of radiation detector at the time. They were all sold out all over the world instantly. So this was a huge breakthrough. And within months, Uh, The group had collected just more data than the government had presented. And then within a couple of years, it was millions of data points. Now it's up to like 170 million data points or something. Just an incredible, incredible data set, all based on open source and open data principles. Mm. The goal was to be as open and transparent as possible to build a trustworthy system uh, because the government systems proved not to be trustworthy and it's 10 more than 10 years and we're still going strong we're doing air quality Um, our maps are online you can go to safecast.org you can see our data you can see our maps which are very very well developed yeah so i spent a lot of time with that now yes how i got involved um i i mentioned a colleague that we were doing sort of peace-related work together And in fact, that uh, project brought me to Africa. That's why I went to Zambia and Mozambique uh, just a couple of years before the disaster. And um, that group, the people who organized that group, my my colleagues, were mainly women, most of whom had worked with refugees in Africa, Southeast Asia, and other places. And they immediately organized a support system, support groups for uh, evacuees from Fukushima. And at one point, they asked me, um, if I could help them get a Geiger counter. Because they were going to be able to use a, um, kind of a campground in Tochigi. But Tochigi Prefecture also got fallout, so they wanted to be able to measure that. And I had heard of Safecast and i got a contact for peter franken and i got in touch with him and then met a guy named joe moross you know and we talked about it and they said yes you can borrow some we'll give you some detectors and i brought them to our group and little by little you know i found i got along very well with the safecast people and and i just uh ended up spending you know becoming a part of the group and my role i'm not an engineer Almost everybody else who's central to SafeCast is an engineer, either software or hardware or something. But I'm a researcher. I'm an academic. So I can go through reports and I can go through the footnotes and I can, you know, parse the stuff and I can do good information searches and collate that stuff and summarize it. And that's what I was doing. I had been doing it uh, for Facebook groups initially. Uh, and then I started doing that for SafeCast, and that's that was a good role for me. So now that's something I continue is to report and write and research and do you know outreach and conferences and gradually have become accepted into the world of radiation experts, um, particularly on the side of information and what's called stakeholder engagement. In other words, giving people uh, empowerment to uh, help make decisions. Uh, after an accident or, or in preparation before anything happens. So it's been a huge change for me compared to making sculpture or something like that. Wow.
1: What an incredible team. Like, yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, 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 an, it's an amazing team. I, I, you know, having also uh, volunteered with Safecast and been part of the organization for quite a time, one of the things I also always want to ask you about is that in this uh, industry and in the space where safecast is there's a lot of um, how would I say this there's a lot of scrutiny from either government or public society or even other experts and in this case as someone who is coming from outside that space not so you mentioned one was that you in a space where there are a lot of engineers but then, also secondly, most strongly is that you're coming from a background which is more related say, to the construction and arts and the historic aspect. How do you find that you've been accepted by this this community or this industry with all the scrutiny, or is it a battle you feel you're constantly preparing
2: yourself for? It's still a struggle, mm-hmm. uh, and this is not just in the case of Safecast, but for citizen science in general, because there's lots of citizen science projects around the world, everything from, you know, climate to um, health to biodiversity to, in our case, environmental radiation or air quality. And our society Despite the decrease in trust in, in expertise and academics, et cetera, is, is still an expertise oriented society. It's a specialized society. People are expected to have some kind of let's say, higher education in a science or or in whatever their field is, and to be certified by, for instance, uh, university degrees, graduate degrees, uh, maybe licensing, uh, other certification. And uh, these things act as a, a kind of a barrier. They're, they're intended to maintain quality standards, but in many cases, they don't actually. So what we found... Uh, Initially, Safecast did not, you know, we didn't reach out to the expert community. We didn't say, hey, come see what we're doing. We were focused on gathering data and simply making available to the general public, right? Average people. Uh, Round about the end of, I want to say 2012 and then 2013, we started to hear from big organizations like there's one called the... um, United uh, United Nations Scientific Committee for the Effects of Atomic Radiation. Mm -hmm. And uh, we heard from them. And uh, they said, we've been looking at your data. We think it's very interesting uh, and useful. And uh, yeah, we welcome the chance to talk a bit. Uh, We were invited in 2014 to participate in an expert meeting at the IAEA, so the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna. And this was very unusual because we were a citizen group, a citizen science group. Uh, and it was the hot seat. I mean, we I had like 14 minutes to make the, the pitch to present our project and what we'd accomplished. And lots of very, very harsh questions uh, are you licensed do you have certification and what about the calibration of your system and and i was there and joe maras was there uh he, he was you know he fielded a lot of the technical questions and i talked about the trust issues and at one point one i guess it was the panel chairman said don't you people see what this group has accomplished you'd be lucky to have people like this in your country if you ever had a nat- uh, nuclear disaster and um Everyone applauded. It was incredible. Absolutely. And then we got approached directly by a few people, uh, a couple of whom then became really good allies. They said, oh, what you're doing is important. It's very close to what I am trying to do. Let's keep talking. And, and one was from uh, the French National uh, Nuclear Laboratory called IRSN. One was from IAEA um, and others gradually. So we built kind of a network of support. Mm-hmm. But within those institutions – there's still not really a place for citizen science. It's still an expertise and and an officially sanctioned sort of structure.
0: Just to to clarify, I I suppose some people call it design science or citizen participation science. The main ideal is community participation. Yes. One thing that maybe then tracks back to this almost... Before I was calling it like you were adding things, but it also feels that it's something you've already been doing before. When you were looking into uh, traditional Edo-style architecture in Japan, Mm -hmm. that was not uh, something you did by yourself. You worked together with the the artisans in order to unknowledge those secrets. I really want to kind of capture a sense of how that almost in a way informs your knowledge into how to interact.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, everything's connected. Architecture is a great field because it embraces so many things, uh, whether it's over, over a huge range of scales, including timescales. So whether it's you know a chair or a cabinet or a single window or a building or a house or a town or a landscape, uh, gardens, etc. Uh, it, it it connects and intersects with all of these things. Climate change, if we're thinking of climate change, uh, issues of sustainability, of course, the way we build things become a very, very important part of that. Uh, for me, this was always clear in a way that things were very connected. Uh, I didn't think of, you know, performing arts as so different from visual arts They were very connected. I mean, obviously, you could have both, you could have both things in the same project Uh, and my approach to my own education was always one involved with breadth and part of it is just my temperament Uh, you know wanting to know about a lot of things wanting to do a lot of things Uh, never really thinking about having a a massive career where you rise to the top of some pyramid I'm never interested in that I'm interested in making those connections so uh, you mentioned Edo so you know, the Edo period in Japan began in the early 1600s, and uh, they, the people of that time, had very limited resources. were facing environmental collapse because of deforestation in the centuries before that, and they managed to reverse that environmental degradation and then make a very sustainable system that lasted for 250 years until this, the, the country opened to the West. I studied that for about five years um, and then wrote a book about it. And um, a lot of that was about things like watersheds and how, how the forest is connected to the watersheds and how the watersheds uh, are connected to the agricultural production system and how everything is all linked together. Because the people of Edo, Period. They understood that very well, and which, which makes
0: perfect sense in terms of the the impact of Fukushima. Absolutely, is the it's like
2: because the watershed became the main transport mechanism for cesium and these radionuclides that you know uh, were in the fallout. It's was like a male, oh well, what should be the source of wonderful life and and sustenance actually became the transport mechanism for cesium. And um, so that was a great like, point is, of view uh, for is me.
0: Cesium, to clarify, um
2: Cesium is is a radionuclide uh, that is often produced during what we call man-made you know uses of nuclear energy and the Fukushima disaster released a lot of cesium uh, two two different isotopes for people who want to know there was cesium 137 and cesium 134 they're a little bit different uh, but large quantities of both were released in in even in the Tokyo area we got down to Tokyo and even further south uh, most of it went out the ocean, which was not great for the ocean, but sort of helped the damage on land not be as bad as it could have been. And it's still there, it's still here. I mean, this cesium will be around for decades, you know, uh, yeah. it really will be there in Fukushima for decades. Yeah,
0: by the way, Hinako, that's a perfect example of asby jumping from one space, which is architecture, <laughs> all the way to isotropes. So, yeah. It, it, Meeting for the first
1: time. This is SB <laughs> on, on a daily basis. I also heard you perform rakugo as well. Like
0: yeah, yeah. yeah like, I like we rakugo. don't know what
1: rakugo is. Rakugo is like a traditional, like a Japanese out of storytelling. Yes, correct. Yeah. Like, how did you start performing? Like,
2: so again, so much has to do with the people that you encounter, uh, and I met a guy named. Tsuji Shinichi, that's actually his pen name. He is an environmentalist. He's actually uh, uh, an anthropologist and has a group called the Namakemono Club. So Namakemono is the sloth. And, of course, it refers to both the mammal called the sloth and also to lazy people. Mm. And he's very interested in sustainable issues and and. These kind of things. And uh, by bizarre chance, uh, he had heard about my book about the Edo period uh, mm. from uh, someone in the UK. And then I happened to meet his daughter. Uh, wow. And talked, and she was telling me about her uncle was building sustainably, and her, her father was doing stuff. Yeah. And then it was like it's the same guy. I wow. got to meet him, so we got we met, and we got along very well. And um, the Namakimono Club uh, organizes events, sort of community events. Uh, especially there's a temple in Totsuka in Yokohama, uh, where uh, we would have events. And one of the events invited a rakugo uh, performer who also is a bit of an activist. Uh, and then a, 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 another actually a real expert on Edo, uh, a researcher named Tanaka Yuko. And I think I was there, I was talking about it yeah. as well. And in the course of the event, the Rakugo teacher said, Okay, let who wants to try a little bit of Rakugo? And it was like a 30 second Rakugo joke. And, <laughs> and it was fun. And then later, she said, well, if you anybody wants to learn more, we can make a group. So we ended up having a group of people from this circle of namaki Mono Club. It included me, it included Suji san uh, you know two musicians. It included, um, you know, and at this point has Indian dancer. Uh, it had, you know, people who are just like, housewife people who you know have a kimono (laughs) shop uh, and it was really interesting
1: interesting yeah yeah and and it
2: started actually like six months before the disaster in 2011 i think we've had 19 what's called ichimonkai so 19 performances so i'm learning basically two generally two new rakugo pieces it's called a neta uh every year and doing it in japanese i was
0: going to add that my Japan I know Japanese is a difficult language. I'm even still studying Japanese, so
2: it's it's hard.
0: I'm not gonna joke, it's hard. It it
2: stretches my Japanese language ability to the maximum. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons why. One is a lot of the language is old fashioned. A lot of things that you only hear in Rakugo, in fact. A lot of the culture of Edo, for instance, Edo was was the city of Tokyo before the modern period. Uh, A lot of the language and cultural things that disappeared in reality are maintained in Rakugo. Mm. So stories about people living in Nagaya, these sort of long tenement houses. And, you know, um, there's a funny one about a guy hammering a nail in the wall of the Nagaya, you know. And because he wants to hang something up, and then it actually goes through the wall to the the, the apartment next door and into the Butsudan, into the family altar, <laughs> like like spears the head of the Buddha, you know. So there's funny funny things like that, and and social relations, you know. There's a fight of the two tenants, and then the 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 landlord comes and has to sort of settle the fight and things like this. So it's wonderfully archaic. Uh, it's also it's it's entertainment for commoners. Uh, and, I mean, most of the traditional Japanese performing arts, uh, like kabuki, that was also for commoners. But rakugo was a little rougher than that. Mm-hmm. It could be a little more vulgar. There's some pretty sexually oriented ones. Uh, but the, one of the interesting things to me is that... Uh, Th- there are generally stories of empowerment of average people. Mm-hmm. So if a samurai shows up in a Rakugo story, they're usually an object of ridicule. They're usually ridiculous. They're usually doing something stupid. Mm-hmm. And people are making fun of them or taking advantage of them. So this is this is really interesting. So people of power almost always in Rakugo uh, end up getting somehow tricked or or taken advantage of. I think it's really, really cool. And uh, this is also part of Japanese culture that it's not so evident uh, on the surface.
0: One of the themes of uh, the Doku demo uh, design podcast is the idea of um, someone who's a multicultural designer. Mm -hmm. What we think uh, about it is someone who's able to take part in something that's not their own, and become part of it, and also to be accepted. Mm. Um, and obviously, that takes a, a long time and a long process. As someone who is a creator on so many different types of mediums, what I mean by that is not only writing, doing uh, sculpture, but also rakugo, you're doing it within the Japanese context, in the Japanese environment. As an international press person, uh, is there anything you find in terms of pressure, or... Like, how do you find it? I mean, I'll leave the question as that. What is your experience? uh, And you don't have to answer for all of them, because
2: there's lots of different mediums. There's no simple answer, but by and large, when I came to Japan, I wasn't sure what I would find. I didn't expect to be here as long as I've been here. But I found that people were very receptive. uh, I'll say to me, but I believe to anyone who showed a serious interest in Japanese culture Mm. and Japanese people and Japanese life, Mm. enough to be studying it or to really want to learn, I found a lot of receptivity and support from people. At the same time, you do find yourself being sort of maybe shut out or kept at a distance in certain contexts. I mean, not everybody was going to welcome a foreigner. I would say... A great example was uh, that, you know, I mentioned I came to Japan to learn about Japanese traditional wooden architecture and especially temple building, temple carpentry. Uh, And the people who do that, the carpenters, Daiku, and the people who build temples and shrines are called Miyadaiku. And I met uh, this wonderful master named Nishioka. He was in his 80s already at the time. And it seemed very unlikely that he would be receptive to me. I just wanted to meet him and ask to see the work. I was just, can I observe the work? And I thought maybe I would be an apprentice, a deshi. Uh, I decided not to try to be an apprentice, but although he invited me, he said, I will teach you if you want. Uh, I was already 27, 28 years old, and I thought, and I'm doing my own creative work, I thought I wouldn't be able to really ethically uphold my obligations uh, I mean as an apprentice in almost anything traditionally in Japan you, you're expected to just be obedient uh, for years and not to even try to do anything original creatively on your own and in the case of uh, carpentry it would be like 7 or 8 years and I thought no I can't do it but anyway he allowed me to to document the project and he made himself available in, in a wonderful open way uh, enough so that a lot of other people around, including some of his apprentices, they were a little bit annoyed about that. Like, why would you spend time talking to this foreigner? You know, uh, this is a Japanese thing, and it should be for Japanese people. And why do you do that? But Nishioka, at the time, he knew that his his work, his art, his the craft that he had inherited from generations of his his family. He was the hereditary. Uh, a uh, uh, carpenter of, of Horyuji Temple I mean for centuries and then of, of Yakushiji temple that this was disappearing it was a disappearing art mm-hmm. and he was among the last to be able to really do it uh, in the scale and the quality that he was capable of doing and he wanted to help the rest of the world understand what it was about he saw me I think as a vehicle for increasing interest overseas, and then hopefully that interest would return to Japan in preserving this craft. So that was a role that I I welcomed. I I willingly took on that role. And this is one of the strange things about Japan. There's this expression called gaiatsu, means outside pressure, but it also means outside influence in a way. And there's many things in Japan, traditional things especially, Arts of all kinds that are underappreciated and are dying out in Japan, but we find foreigners who love them, who work and learn them, master them, present them, write about them, etc. And this helps them become recognized within Japan. So that is the main thing. It's like a bridge and like a vehicle uh, for for raising consciousness and awareness and interest. Both overseas, but really, the key is to help them be preserved in Japan.
1: Yeah, he's so really a pasture.
2: Yeah. No. So that that's that example, and then there was a time. I mean, my own work, like my academic work, uh, for instance, in architecture or or fine art, mm. the fact that I was educated outside of Japan uh, gave me a very different uh, set of standards and expectations. Uh, and I, I would say, you know, Yale um, was very good in terms of arts education. Uh, I mean, the the amount of art or architectural history that we are expected to learn and master and be conversant in, the 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 quality of the discourse that was expected when your work is being critiqued and you're talking to the professors, this was very, very, uh, very, very demanding uh, and very contemporary. I mean, there was lots of historical work and historical courses. I took courses in Chinese painting. I took a course in Celtic Architecture, Celtic art and architecture. I took courses in modern art and architecture. I took all sorts of wonderful courses, and uh, and they all influenced you know my thinking. Um, but it was a very different point of view compared to Japanese education in art or architecture. And it's a very interesting thing that I realized, and it connects with what I mentioned before about going to this party and this person was not interested. And 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 my university didn't have a course. Uh, In Japan, in most fields, especially if it's a creative field, let's say architecture, a person is not going to be considered educated in Japan if they don't know both the Western tradition, the Western canon, so to speak, and the Japanese or more broadly East Asian traditions and canon. You need to know both. And this has been that way since the Meiji period. It's, it's, It's a double education of double responsibility uh, and this is simply it's it's true in literature it's true in music it's true in, in, in just about everything uh, so that's actually a huge advantage I think in some ways but it's also a burden and it's only been within let's say the last generation that uh, Western uh, in, in the West in universities let's say again limited even to art or architecture are expected to be very conversant in some non-western, uh, culture as well, and it, it may be uh, Asian, it may be African, it may be Latin American, it may be something else. So, um, this this sort of notion that you can be considered edu- educated and only know the Western way, this has gradually shifted. I think that's that's a a, a great a great shift. Uh, so, but I found that when I would write about art. And I did a lot of writing. I mean, I recently, uh, I've compiled, I have a book project of my writing on contemporary art. Uh, I found, you know, I had like 130 texts that I wrote for various magazines and things on art in general and, and a bunch on, on contemporary Japanese art from the late 1980s and early 1990s. So
0: can this be found on your website?
2: I have, yeah, my website, I have an archive site. It's called asbbrown.com And I have a lot of texts there.
0: I'm gonna, I'll, I'll link and to I the will. Podcasts. I'll
2: continue add because I'm yeah, continuing to write. But I found that there was a lot of interest in that approach because within Japanese criticism, art criticism, that wasn't common at all. In fact, people have said, and it is still largely true, that there is almost no real art criticism in Japan or architectural criticism in Japan of what we consider criticism. Mm. Uh, things would generally be a person writing about something that they like in order to introduce it. So it would be called shokai, shokai and And this notion that there is some set of criteria and you will evaluate this work according to these criteria in some trying to be objective. This was a very unfamiliar idea. For Japanese art writers or art critics, it was much more subjective and about your responses and the structure rather than being, well, A, B, C, therefore D, this Western rational you know uh, rhetorical structure that's not very common here it's rather I felt this then I felt that it reminded me of this and if you think this is important then maybe you will have this feeling it's it's a spiral structure coming into some evaluation
0: Do you know what I actually even have my own comments on that but I'm gonna I'm gonna save them for now because I yeah. feel that we need to get you back onto this podcast because that is a topic on its own certainly Um, and i I think definitely we will be continuing this conversation
2: but i will just say this you asked about response there were a number of cases where i would strongly criticize work either architecture maybe something about city planning maybe something about art and people were absolutely furious absolutely furious like as if it's unforgivable unforgivable because it does not happen in Japanese, uh, media. Yes. And I could tell you, uh, I remember having been approached by a Japanese architecture magazine. I was still a graduate student at Todai. And I said, if there's something you want to write about, we're welcome to, to be interested to publish what you want to write about. And I made a proposal, actually wrote something. It was actually very critical. Uh, it it might've been critical about Tadao Ando. And, uh, they said, our policy is no negative criticism. And the reason is we depend on advertisers. And if you're criticizing an uh, architecture project, a building, it's very likely that one of our advertisers is involved in that project and they would be very unhappy. So it's like, oh, <laughs> well, thanks for telling me. <laughs> At least you're honest. It's you know, an architecture street, magazine and you know, no that. negative criticism. Well, what do you think? Well, right?
0: that, that, that's a yeah. actually, that, that is
2: That's a policy. Mm. You can't say anything bad if you can't say something nice don't say anything at all wow <laughs> I,
0: I think on, on, on that bombshell of realization we're going to close the, the podcast okay I'm going to let the, the listeners actually give them some time to digest that that actual sure big
1: bombshell.
0: Hinako any uh, last closing thoughts from uh, your side
1: um I'm interested in like Rakugo, so maybe I would love to listen you performing someday. <laughs> yeah, we have
2: Ichimon Kai on November 23rd. But this, because of the coronavirus, uh, we have not been having audiences or at least just a few invited people, but we're doing it online. Mm-hmm. So I will find out uh, yeah. what it's going to be. There may be a small invited audience. Uh, but, you know, I love the Rakugo and I am always... Really nervous uh, before the performance, and and thinking, oh, I can't do it. I gotta, I'm, I'm gonna cancel because I never have enough time to practice, right? And I managed to get through. And and my our shisho, our our uh, teacher. She's always, you know, saying, yeah, you know, you always do fine in the end. <laughs> yeah. On the day of the performance, you always pull it, pull it out. You know? <laughs> but I'm always so nervous because, like I said, it really uh, taxes my language ability to the limit. Mm. Yeah. So. No.
1: Yeah. I like how passionate you are. Like, I'm very <laughs> yeah, inspired. <laughs> Thank you.
2: I hope I stay that way. You know, it's, it's hard. It's hard to maintain passionate optimism in the face of so many problems that are really existential. But that's what I'm trying to do. So,
0: no, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank very you both.
2: Much. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. Yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, we'll show it there for today's episode of Doctor Demon podcast. Thank you.
1: Bye bye.